0: I'm not Dr. Young, Uh, (laughs) for those of you I haven't met, I'm Chris Luke, I am the minister to young couples, came on staff in June, Uh, delighted to be with you tonight and uh, our text for tonight is in Luke 14, it is a hard word, but it is his word. So follow as I read Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions, Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray again. Father, uh, these are hard words, and as I look back uh, over the last few weeks and Think, anywhere in the Bible we could have gone and you would have us go here. Lord, your word is holy. We want all of it. Please do not hold my sin against these, your people. Lord, speak to us tonight. Might we hear you loud and clear. Give us the ears to hear that we might follow. We pray, of course, in Christ's name. Amen. You all know about a litmus test, right? I mean, you... Stick the piece of paper in the solution to find the properties of the solution. And I believe Jesus' word tonight will prove to be a proper litmus test of our faith, both of our of the strength of our faith and as well as just the property at the ground floor, whether or not our faith in Christ actually exists. Are you a disciple? Do you have saving faith? Examine your heart tonight in response to Jesus' word to you. It will serve as a good litmus test as to whether or not you're His disciple. So I'm going to go ahead and and turn over my cards, um, show you my hand before we play. I've been out of this area for the last couple years, and most people in the Bible Belt, call themselves Christians. But many that call themselves Christians are not Christians, and all Christians are disciples. In fact, it was in Antioch, after Jesus' death and resurrection, after Pentecost and after Paul's conversion, where the disciples were first called Christians, There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple. Or we could say, true faith follows. Faith that does not follow Christ is not faith in Christ. Grace without discipleship is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Grace without discipleship is no grace at all, it is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. The grace of the gospel, Bonhoeffer said, is a costly grace. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man his only true life. He said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man from an extremely wealthy family in Germany in the early 1900s. He was a brilliant man with rich theological knowledge and every opportunity set before him. He was a man that left the comfort and security of the theological specter, even the safety and security of a life in America to return back home to Germany in the heat of the Second World War. Dietrich Bonhoeffer followed Christ willingly, and joyfully all the way to his death, or should we say, through his death, in a concentration camp, into eternal glory with our Lord. He was a man that understood the cost of discipleship. Salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship costs you everything. My hope tonight is that disciples would be encouraged, and press on in following Christ. And uh, if providentially we have those in our midst that are not true disciples, that by God's grace they might realize that and repent, believe, and follow Christ. Let's take a look. Verse 25 says, Now large crowds were going with them. That large uh, means a great many crowds, plural. There were a great many crowds, big crowd upon big crowd that were going along with Him. This is what people were doing. They had heard of His transforming power. He was healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. Many had seen His miracles firsthand. They had at least heard of His teaching and many had heard Him teach. And He taught with authority. There were great Many crowds going with them, and he turns to them, and he spoke. And, and let me just say, what he said to the crowds completely obliterates the seeker-sensitive church model as the way that we ought to go. You know, the thought that, well, we know they're here, that might, those here that might be new in our midst, and so we don't want to scare them off with hard teaching, But as far as teaching goes, that is the opposite of the way that Jesus did things. Here the great many crowds gather around, no doubt there are some that are still out of breath because they're running to see what all the fuss is about. They're brand new to the scene. And what Jesus says to these masses of people are some of the hardest words of truth that we will ever hear from His mouth. Now, we don't have a seeker-sensitive church. We get the hard truth from here and from there every week. Thank God. You guys understand what I mean. you know. Of course, uh, we want to be sensitive and, and inviting to all people, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter if you've ever been in a church or not, no matter what you're going through, all are welcome, but we don't ever want to shy away from the whole truth. Because only the truth can set us free. However, we too, I believe, can fall victim to an anti-Jesus way of thinking about the masses of people. Let me bring it a little closer to home. Here in the Bible Belt, tons of people go to church. Almost everyone gathers around the things of Jesus at some point. But doesn't our... Or don't we tend in our thinking to say, how can we get more people? How can we you know, get more people on board with what we're doing next? And the, the questions aren't wrong, necessarily, as how we might tend to answer them. Jesus turns to the masses and He gives them a litmus test of faith. Instead of seeking to increase His following... By finding new ways to get more people on board, he's seeking to reduce his following to those who are truly following. Verse 26, what does he say? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." What do we make of this word hate? I mean, Jesus would have us love our enemies, right? And, I mean, in the most perfect act of love in human history, He died a gruesome death on a cross for His enemies. But He wants us to hate our families? It really doesn't seem to jive. And I want to offer a good rule to follow. Always let Scripture interpret itself. In Matthew 10:37 we find the same interaction with the crowds, the same message as told from Matthew's perspective instead of Luke's. Matthew 10:37 he says, "He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me." Now, if we take those two together, no doubt Jesus is using strong language. And the issue is love relationships, the emphasis loyalty. Again, the issue is love relationships and the emphasis loyalty. One commentator says it this way, To love this and to hate that is a typical biblical way of expressing preference. Love for parents or spouse or child is to be so far surpassed by love for him that it will seem, in comparison, like hatred. It's like if you have a friend that shares a birthday with your spouse or with your child. You know, your friend calls and says, Hey, it's my birthday. We're going to go out tonight. You say, Yeah, I'm busy, right? You're you're busy, you love your friend, but you love your spouse or your child more. How much more ought our loyalties lie with our Lord and Savior, even over our spouse or children or parents? In all things, Christ is preeminent. He holds highest rank and supreme function. That is the message of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Joe Thorne is a pastor in the Midwest, and he's, an, he's the author of a book called Note to Self. And just a side note, um, it'd be a great book to jot down and get. It's short, it serves as a devotional, and it's about the discipline of preaching the gospel to yourself. So naturally, the whole book is Joe talking to himself. The book is a compilation of a bunch of letters that he wrote to himself while meditating on Scripture. And while meditating on this particular passage in Luke, he said it this way, You know that salvation is of grace, and that you receive it by faith alone. But faith in Jesus is not a simple agreement with His words and principle. It is dependence on Him to such a degree that you renounce all other things in life, that have occupied a place of supremacy. I think it's a wonderful uh, meditation. A disciple's loyalty and devotion to his most significant human relationships is in subjection to his loyalty and devotion to Christ. Or we could say a disciple's devotion to Christ is so true, it's so central and so significant that every other relationship is subject to it. You say, I'm with that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and I want to bring it a little closer to home. Parents, are you funding your children's folly? Spouse, are you suppressing a particular conviction that you know you need to share, but you're afraid they'll think you're too radical? A conviction about spending or about serving or about giving your time and money or about funding your children's folly? Are you suppressing a conviction from your Lord because of fear of your family? If so, repent and have that hard conversation and follow Him. A disciple's loyalty and devotion to Christ is so true So central and so significant that every other relationship is subjected to it, even your own life. Verse 27 Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I think these words take a a serious beating. In our world, we we say, and look, I know these are sensitive subjects right now, seriously, but we say the house won't sell. It's my cross to bear. Or you say, you know, Johnny isn't playing on the football team. It's my cross to bear. Or even something as significant as I lost my job. It's my cross to bear. Look, those things are no fun, and I don't want to make light of them but the scales are so off. When you think about it that way, you miss the weight of what Jesus is saying to you. He's not talking about a circumstantial difficulty. He's talking about a willing, unwavering, lifelong commitment to Him unto death. Now, none of us has ever seen anyone die on a cross, but all of His hearers had to take your own cross. There is no stronger language. A man walking with a cross on his back is a dead man walking. He was a public spectacle. Laws no longer applied to him. He was mocked and tortured and beaten and spit on and lashed and stripped naked or close to it. Publicly humiliated and then nailed to the wood to die a slow, terrible death. Don't make light of His death on the cross. To take up your own cross and to follow Him is at least talking about a willing, unwavering, lifelong commitment to Christ unto death. And look, We may not suffer like some have, and I don't think this is a prophetic word, but as a Christian in this country, I don't think it's far off. Press on, friends. All who are His will persevere to the end because He will supply the grace necessary to do so. Take up your cross and follow Him. Verses 28 through 32, we're going to come back to in just a bit. But verse 33 says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Loyalty and devotion, willing, unwavering commitment unto death, in all things Christ is preeminent, of highest rank and supreme function, every relationship is in subjection to Him, and so is every possession. It's really simple. Your life is not your own and neither is your stuff. Even the hardest working, rags to riches story among us, everything you have has been given to you. The will to work hard. The health and energy to do it. The right open doors at the right time. Your life is not your own. And Jesus is saying, and that includes your stuff, Christ's disciples give up their possessions. And the ESV puts it this way, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, this one takes a beating in our world. It's usually responded to with a but. But Proverbs talks about being a good steward. And if I just give all my money away... Is that being a good steward? I can't personally tell you what the Lord would have you do with your abundance of wealth, but I do know this. You have an abundance of wealth. And it's all a gift. And Jesus is aiming at all of our hearts. At least He is condemning half-heartedness. There is no such thing as a half-hearted disciple. All that you are and everything that you have is to be entrusted to Him. And He has complete freedom to change your entire world. Do I think God is glorified when you're giving 10% to the church? If in your heart of hearts you have laid everything at His feet and He has led you to give that amount and to steward the other 90 elsewhere, absolutely and amen. Do I think that God would be glorified if you were giving 90% of your income to His work? I know... God will be glorified, period. And He will be glorified in your life if you renounce all that you have by recognizing that it is all from Him. Rely on Him to lead you so that you can rest in His sovereign lordship. And that's a good place to start. One of my favorite stories is of uh, Greg and Laura Rogers. And many of you know it. They were members here for a while. Their son Sam still goes here. Um... Greg and Laura's marriage was on the rocks. Uh, they were separated, and kind of last gasp, uh, you know, we're going to sell our house in Carville, and we're going to move to Binghamton. They did, and their life for the last five years has been spent giving most of their time and much of their money to service that community. I, I don't say that. I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone. I don't know what the Lord's leading to you to do. I'm not saying that you ought to move to Binghamton. We like you out here in Germantown. But at least, at least it has to go before Him. At least it has to be laid at the altar. Verses 28 through 32. Jesus gives us two parables one about a man that is going to build a tower, and one about a king that is heading to war. The guy that's setting out to build the tower, or you could think house, is uh, going to measure the cost of building. He's going to seek to make sure he knows exactly what he's getting into so that he'll be able to finish. And for the king that is going to war, decision time is now. He's got 20,000 troops headed his way. War is upon him. There is no neutrality the time to act is now. The builder has the freedom to measure the cost of what is ahead, but the king must make his decision now. And so it is for us. In the first parable, Jesus is saying, sit down, measure the cost of discipleship. Can you afford to follow me? And in the second parable, Jesus is saying the time to act is is now, can you afford to refuse my demands? Consider what he's saying to you tonight. Grace is costly. Discipleship costs you your life, but it affords you the only true life that is to be found, which is in him. We're talking about complete trust, wholehearted devotion. Lose your life to find it in him. Verses 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, It is impossible for the salt that we know, sodium chloride, to lose its flavor. But the salt from the Dead Sea can mix with other chemicals and lose its property. It no longer preserves and it produces a stale flavor. As Jesus walked the earth, He came in contact with many religious people who rejected Him. He lived in the world with people who spent their whole lives studying the law and the prophets, but they missed the Messiah that the law and the prophets were given to reveal. I think the implications are astounding in our context. We live, as I've said, in the Bible Belt culture where there is a premium on church attendance and theological perspective and even good works, but How many hear these words and willingly respond in loyal devotion to Christ? How many hear these words and and are refreshed because you are His, because He is good, and because there is no other life? He is the way. He is the truth and the life. How many hear these words and it affirms the call? I hope everyone. But I think far fewer, at least on a broader spectrum, than our culture lets on. Bible Belt seems to me is becoming an oxymoron. It's no longer normal to preach the whole truth. Of course it is here, but it's no longer normal to build a church on the rock. That seems the first thing to go is the truth. Salt that loses its saltiness is worthless. It's not even good for the manure pile. We're talking about all-encompassing, all-consuming, all of life. Now look, I completely understand struggling with these things. I mean, preparing this for the last few days, I'm struggling with these things. It's some of the hardest words that we're going to get from Jesus. But let me be clear that rejecting these things is something different altogether. You know, most of the large crowds that gathered around Him, they heard Him speak these things, but they rejected Him. And and many in our large crowds gather around Jesus here in the Bible belt and reject these words in their heart. And I would submit to you that many that walk in these doors week in and week out do reject and will continue to reject these words that Jesus is saying to us tonight. In Luke 13, just before the passage that we've read, Jesus says. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Many will knock at the door and say, Lord, open to us. He will answer, I do not know where you come from. And they will say, well, we drank in your presence and we taught in your streets. And he will say, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. Many will come to him on that day and will say, Lord. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Guys, every believer will struggle with the reality of discipleship, but to reject it is something different altogether. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. All Christians are disciples. Grace without discipleship is cheap grace, which is no grace at all. This is a litmus test for true saving faith. And look, I'm not saying that you're perfect, but I'm saying that you're fixed to Him. I'm saying that you're convicted and that you desire to lead a life that's following Him in faith and repentance. True faith follows. And faith that does not follow Christ is not faith in Christ. Salvation costs you nothing, but discipleship costs you everything. Consider these things. Measure the weight of what is being said and measure whether or not you can afford to dismiss them. Look at the results of the litmus test in here. Examine your heart in response to God's truth. Are you struggling with the call to discipleship? Are you rejecting it altogether? To close, uh, I want to plug Bonhoeffer, which is uh, the biography written by Eric Metaxas. It's about 600 pages. It's huge, but it is well worth it. Very well done. Um, I also want to plug... The Cost of Discipleship uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But I think uh, this is just the way I did it. And after I read that biography, it's a fascinating from a historical perspective, theological perspective. It is wonderful. Um, and now trying to devour probably one of the you know, weightiest theological works on discipleship, I think it's good having read that biography before. Um, but to close, I want to read a passage from... The Cost of Discipleship, from a man that walked his talk. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow Him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at His call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and His call are necessarily our death as well as our life. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I have a hard time reading these words on a page, uh, much less sitting in them for a few days, much less living my life out in them. But God, you call us, and you are so good. Lord, there is no other life but in you. A life lost to you is a life gained, and so I ask, God, give us the faith. Strengthen our faith that we might follow you. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.